Hey, Fidelity. How can I remember to invest every month? With the Fidelity app, you can choose a schedule and set up recurring investments in stocks and ETFs. Oh, that sounds easier than I thought. You got this. Yeah, I do. Now, where did I put my keys? You will find them where you left them. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hello, huge fan listeners. Baseball season is upon us, and no one is more tapped into America's pastime than huge fans of baseball. All season long, the brightest stars root for their favorite teams through brutal losses and glorious victories. From Jerry Ferrara to Jenna Elfman, each huge fan has their own fan story and game day routine. For millions of people, the game means family, friends, food, and more. To me, the game means absorbing all the passion and excitement of these baseball fans and becoming a bigger fan in the process. Between monstrous home runs, roaring stadiums, and delicious ballpark snacks, I am locked in. While baseball may be America's pastime, the entire world is baseball crazy with countless ballplayers from around the globe in the major leagues. In preparation for the MLB All-Star Game, we'll journey through our favorite moments on and off the field. No matter the market, what section you sit in, or who you root for, we've got it covered. I'm LaChina Robinson. Those sweet, funky sounds you hear are the Budos Band. And this is Huge Fan, the podcast where stars talk sports. Every guest has a unique fan journey that sets the tone for the show. I learned so much from them, and these stories might surprise you too. Let's take a look at how some of our baseball fanatics became such huge fans. Death Cab for Cuties' Ben Gibbard is transported back to his childhood as he travels to the old kingdom with his father. Uh, in my first memories of being a Mariners fan are really tied up with the old kingdom. Uh, we had an old uh, uh, kind of fully concrete dome here in Seattle up until I think 2000 or so. And uh, my dad would take me as a kid. I must have been seven or eight. We would hop on the back of his motorcycle and we'd drive around from Bremerton, where my, my parents still live and where I was brought up, around the Sound and then to Seattle. And we would sit in these $3 bleacher seats. This is like the early 80s. The teams in the 80s weren't very good. But, you know, I had my favorite players and because they were our team and you didn't know any better as a kid, you're just like, oh, these are my guys. This is this is my team. And I, I grew up loving Alvin Davis and Mark Langston and Spike Owen. And yeah. So, you know, when we were little kids, it was so cheap to go to the ballpark. We would go all the time. Ben riding to the game on the back of his dad's motorcycle surely made a lasting impression for Patrick Carney, drummer for the Black Keys. Taking in the game with family cemented his fandom. Probably around 86 or so when I was six years old, um, going to the game 
with my dad and, and my brothers and um, another family and uh, eating a hot dog. <laughs> I remember that uh, the tickets were like $3 and uh, no one was in there. But I got very familiar with the roster around 87, uh, 88. I was a super fan. I just was obsessed with Joe Carter and uh, Julio Franco. You know, the movie Major League came out probably you know, a year or two after I got into the team. And it was just like, there's a destiny here. They're going to be good one day. It was just amazing the following, you know, six, seven years watching Cleveland start dominating and go to the World Series twice. It was incredible. My dad, he worked at the Akron Beacon Journal, the newspaper in town, and a bunch of people in the newsroom bought four season tickets or something. And so he got 13 games or something. Somehow he won the lottery to get the tickets to, I think it was game six of the World Series against the Marlins. And he took me and uh, Cleveland lost and it was snowing. Here is this expansion team from Florida winning the World Series. I completely gave up on baseball, really, for about the following 10 years. I just couldn't. I couldn't do it anymore. When I moved to Nashville around 2010, my neighbor, who became my best friend, Courtney Little is his name. He's obsessed with the Cubs, and he got me right back into baseball. So for the past 10 years, I've just been obsessed with it. A super fan who got a boost from a movie? Who'd have thunk it? For Drew Carey, host of The Price is Right, going to Cleveland baseball games was just the thing to do. Man, I would go to games when I lived in Cleveland like all the time. Because when I was growing up, the Cleveland were never like that competitive. And, um, you know, it was a, like a 70,000 or 72,000 seat stadium for baseball, which was crazy even back then. But the home opener would get 60,000, you know, something like that. And then the next game would be 18,000. But you could go there and there were just times when you could go to that 72,000 seat park and there'd be five, 6,000 people there. And you could get a bleacher ticket for a couple bucks and uh, just, you know, sit with your friends and catch some sun. Or if you bought a ticket ticket, you just buy a cheap general admission ticket. And then the ushers were already pretty cool if you're nice to them and you just stroll by and wave and sit up in a box seat. And, you know, if the usher was cool, they wouldn't do anything, especially if you just waited till like the fourth inning. We had all kinds of like schemes and, and plans for like, <laughs> you know, don't go down in the first inning and make the usher look bad. Just wait a few innings and then kind of wander down like you're looking for something and then have a seat. And if he says something, he'll like ask you to move, but normally you'll be like, whatever, just sit wherever you want. And we used to go to games just at the last minute. You know, if it was summer and we had nothing to do, you're off school and we can catch a bus and get down there and be there on time. And we just wing it. I loved baseball growing up. That's pretty sweet that Drew got to move around the stadium during less attended games, or at least if the ushers were cool. You know how it is. For Jerry Ferrara of Entourage and Power fame, his fanhood came from one special person in his life. Baseball was my first love when I was a little, little kid. And that all goes to my mom. My mom was like a diehard Yankee fan. I remember she took me to one of my first games and almost made an incredible catch on a foul ball. I was blowing, still to this day, one of the best efforts on a catch I've ever seen. She didn't hang on to the ball and some drunk dude like pushed her out of the way. This is in 1986. Uh, oh, a great catch. So I remember watching a Yankee game where a pitcher threw a note on the Yankees, threw a no hitter and lost, which I didn't even think was possible at that point because the Yankees had four errors. He walked eight guys. Andy Hawkins pitched a no-hitter and lost. So that was one of my earlier memories. 
but the Yankees were always bad. Like everyone thinks I've had this charmed life as a Yankee fan. They sucked in the eighties and the early, early nineties, they started getting it together a little bit. And then when like Jeter came along and those nineties Yankees, it was an incredible dynasty kind of run, but it was not easy being a Yankee fan when the Mets were great in New York in like 86, 87, Strawberry Gooden. My friends used to tease me a lot at a young age. It's always great to see moms getting their kids into sports. But documentarian Ken Burns has an unorthodox road to his Red Sox fandom. Well, it's funny because I'm a convert to the Red Sox. I'm huge. It feels like almost all of my life. But I... I was born in Brooklyn, never grew up there. So I had this sort of uh, identification with the Dodgers, but not a real one. Uh, I lived in Detroit, uh, outside of Detroit when the Tigers won in 68. And then the whole counterculture stuff, the anti-Vietnam War stuff, baseball seemed like something. So the Mets victory in 69 was kind of a, you know, a human interest story. I wasn't into the game and I lost 70 and 71 completely, but in 72, I had gone to college at Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. A friend of mine had bought a new Sony Trinitron set, and he said, look at this, look at this picture. And what was on was the Red Sox, and it was Jim Rice, and it was Carlton Fisk, and it was, you know, Fred Lynn, and I, and I just, like a, like a baby chick, I just imprinted and realized, oh, I love this game. I had left it for intellectual reasons. So I have been, since 1972, like a diehard full on Red Sox fan, all the suffering, all the joy of the last of this of this millennium. Uh, it's great. A New York native as a Red Sox fan. Now I've seen everything. As for actor couple Jenna and Bodie Elfman, the Dodgers were ingrained in the L.A. natives through family and by nature. I'm from Hollywood, like literally born in the middle of the city in a house. Hippie parents went to Dodger games starting like probably 1972. So, I mean, I really was old school. And then we met in 91. And when did we realize? My dad would take me to Dodger games when I was young. It's probably when I was like around 11, yeah. 10, 11, you know, because mm -hmm. I grew up also in LA, like you said. Um, we could have gone to the same Dodger games uh, as kids. Totally. So um, when did we realize that, that it, oh, when did we start? It was when I started coaching Little League with the kids the whole family got into a baseball oh, yeah. obsession and then it was like Dodgers, Dodgers, Dodgers. I think so, we went to a couple Dodger games together before that, but it wasn't quite yeah. as like it, a shared impassioned experience. Just like the Elfmans, family played a big role in The Handmaid's Tale star Elizabeth Moss's love of the Chicago Cubs. My earliest memory of watching a Cubs game was watching with my grandfather um, and he would, I would, it must have, it felt like the middle of the night to me, but now I know it couldn't have been. It was probably like 8 p.m. And I would get up out of, sneak out of bed when I was staying at my grandparents' house and go watch a Cubs game with him. And it was like this kind of like secret cool thing that we were doing together. Generations of family bonding over their fandom. You love to see it. The love of the game is a huge draw. But sometimes it's the unique fan bases, passionate communities, and intense stadium atmosphere that pulled these stars into super fandom. For Ken Burns, the vintage appeal of Fenway Park has everything a baseball fan needs. Of course, I'm biased. So everybody has to take it with a grain of salt. It's the best ballpark. It's the oldest. Um, and so it has that kind of intimacy and funkiness, but it's had good owners since the, you know, the new 
uh, uh, millennium, and they've they've fixed it up in a way that hasn't destroyed any of of this of the stuff. And you know, and I had already reached a point where even my friends were horrified. I said, "Look, maybe our luck would change if they built another stadium." But they didn't. They fixed it up, and then immediately we were in contention, and then and then won. Uh, I, I remember coming in. First of all, the park itself is green, and then you go in, and it's kind of the bowels of the worst, oldest stadium you've ever seen. And then you come out, and it's just so intimate and so spectacular and it's green 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 and the red of the clay and the dirt and um you know have my own faith but this is a secular cathedral and it's it's wonderful the way ballparks disrupt the grid of most cities they exist in a way that turns you around it matters very much who you see the games with and what kind of experiences you can forge within the stadium it's a timeless classic that has stood the test of time, Ken. But Fenway wasn't the only old stadium that left a tremendous impact. Ben Gibbard takes us down memory lane at the Kingdom. Because the Kingdom was such a monolithic, giant building, and our seats were so terrible, we would have to walk up what felt like 10 flights of stairs around these kind of, around the concourse to get up to these seats. So I remember just walking for what felt like forever. And when you have eight-year-old legs, you know, it's like, <laughs> it, it, it's, it feels that much farther. I guess like walking into the kingdom, it, it didn't have the majesty of Camden Yards or Yankee Stadium or something because it was an AstroTurf field with the old, you know, it just, just where the bases were, there was dirt and everything else was AstroTurf. Um, so I, I don't remember having any kind of majestic feelings about the park, but because there was so little baseball on TV in the 80s, it wasn't like it is now where you can watch every game uh, in every city. There was this kind of feeling of wonder as, as far as just the fact that those were the guys that I had. I had their baseball cards and, you know, I'd seen them on posters and stuff like that. So that was pretty uh, kind of impactful on me. The look and feel of a stadium can certainly leave a lasting impression. Just ask Jerry Ferrara, who was in awe once he saw Yankee Stadium in person. First time I ever saw anything like on TV than in real life. Mm -hmm. So that transition as a little kid, I, I, you know, jaw dropping awe. And then like the stadium, which was always felt old, smelled like beer and mustard and all that. Like I could still like close my eyes and really smell what Yankee stadium smelled like. And like the, and it literally was beer and mustard and other stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it just looked fake to me. I couldn't believe that like that was real. And it looked so much bigger than it did on TV. Like TV, it kind of looked small, obviously. You know what they say, smells can trigger memories. Jerry must be flooded with memories of Yankee Stadium anytime he smells mustard. Patrick Carney remembers some of the oddities in Cleveland's ballpark. I remember being completely aware of how ugly their uniforms were and also looking around and, and realizing how many bad seats there were. There were beams everywhere. If somehow they had sold all, whatever, 70,000 tickets in there, a good 10,000 of them would be behind beams. That could surely make a game hard to watch, but also definitely hard to forget. Elizabeth Moss just remembers Wrigley Field being ingrained in her upbringing. I just remember going to Wrigleyville. I remember going, like I remember going to the field, and mm -hmm. but I don't remember exactly which game would have been the first one. Um, mm -hmm. 
because it just feels like I've always been going, if that makes any sense. You know, it feels like yes. it's such a part of the fabric of my life and yeah. upbringing that um, I don't remember a time when I wasn't going. Now that's true fandom right there. This love of sports isn't just passed down through family traditions, but also built on the field itself. While some fans were drawn to the game by playing Little League as children, others were simply drawn to the sport by the allure of the magnificent athletes they watched on the field. Patrick Carney and Ben Gibbard both talk about their Little League success before maxing out their talent on the field and realizing their real gift was musical rather than athletic. I played Little League. I was on this team when I was nine, and we were just terrible. We were all first-year players, and we just lost every game. The next year, we were all on the same team, and now we were like the oldest kids in the league, and we won like every game. It was like kind of an important life lesson, I guess, going from worst to best. I stuck with baseball, but eventually, like certain dudes were just <laughs> way better than I was. And around that time, my dad kind of introduced me to Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, then Nirvana's record Nevermind came out, and I was still into baseball, but I was not really playing it anymore. I was watching it and I was playing music. So around the time I was like 12, I just made the switch. Slowly, I just kind of went more and more into guitar. By the time I was a teenager, I was a little conflicted as to how to be a baseball fan, but not be a jock. But, you know, that's an everyday battle for me. When I tell people I'm into baseball or sports in general, I'm completely obsessed with sports, really. People are sometimes kind of shocked because, I mean... I'm a music nerd who's also obsessed with sports. There's actually quite a few of us. Ben Gibbard. I'm not going to lie. I made a few all-star teams. I made a few all-star teams. At some point, my skills uh, did not kind of keep up with, you know, I, my growth spurts or my skills didn't quite match up with the other kids. So I kind of stopped playing baseball uh, around like junior high or so. And all the while, I'd also been a competitive swimmer. So that, that kind of became my main sport through high school. But um, yeah, I mean, I was okay. You know, I was, I was decent, but you know, I, I wasn't on a path to collegiate or professional ranks by any stretch of the imagination. I think I speak for all of us when I say that I'm glad Patrick and Ben found their way to music. Before Jerry Ferrara found acting, he was really focused on the positions that stood out to him on the field. Because when I was really starting to like lock in on baseball is also when like the Jeter kind of stuff started. So I was locked in on the shortstop. And to me, it was always the, like the position I wanted to play, but was never quite good enough to play. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always used to like lock in on the catcher. I always like, cause I played catcher cause I was like a chubby kid. So I think they thought I would absorb getting hit with the pitches a little bit better. They stuck me. I, I'll never forget my, like, I think it was like my 10 year old little league team. No one wanted to play catcher. The kid who usually played was like out sick that day. Coach is like, what do you guys got? It has to play catcher. He's like, Ferrara, you look like Get you in could there. be a catcher. I'm like, <laughs> oh, no. I don't know if that's insulting or not, but <laughs> sure. And I mean, I was I was just getting hit with pitches all day. So I, I have a whole respect for catchers. But uh, yeah. And then like a Yankee center fielder is always like yeah. going to be looked at. It's one of the prize positions in sports. Jerry might have taken a beating as a catcher back then, but now he gets all our love. There were lots of options for Drew Carey's favorite players, but only one super standout. Oh, man. In Cleveland, geez, so many. You know, Gaylord Perry and, uh, you know, Frank, I was there for Frank Robinson's first game as a player manager when he hit a home run. 
I, I still say that the pitcher served it up to him because it was Frank Rod. You know, it's pretty historic, and he's making it's a big deal that he's playing, and you know, the player wants him to have a good. I think the pitcher just like served him an easy batting practice ball so he could knock it out of the park, you know, and make a good show. Which, so what? He still hit a home run, and uh, I was there uh, for a a, a no hitter. I think Dennis. It was Dennis Eckersley that pitched a no-hitter. Well, there's one uh, particular player that I'd like to get your uh, opinion on, and that's Joe Charbonneau. Super Joe Char- Super Joe Charbonneau? Yeah, tell us about his <laughs> rise and fall. That was it. He's, his nickname that people call him now is Clark Kent Charbonneau because he, <laughs> he, he had an amazing like rookie year, Joe Charbonneau, and then uh, had a sophomore slump, and that was it. But he was like, you know, the, in Cleveland, it wasn't to sell tickets. Like you couldn't say like, hey, you got to get tickets because, you know, they're going to be contending and, you know, they're going to win the central or whatever the division they were in. They would always talk about like the star they signed, like a Boog Powell. People would yell Boog and they would say they're not Boog. They're not saying Boo, They're saying Boog. And I remember him being a big deal. And it's also Gaylord Perry was a big deal when he, uh, Ken, the Hawk Harrelson came and played for Cleveland for a bit, uh, you know, when I was in high school. Um, so there's these players that would come and, and people would be excited to see those players, but they knew the team wasn't going to be anything. So like you would just go to watch those players. And Joe Charbonneau was like a, a, a big hit. And uh, from all accounts, like I've only I've seen like interviews with him and stuff, and he seems like the nicest guy. And I I can't remember what he's doing now, but he has some kind of down to earth, regular career going. And you know, uh, I I've heard nothing but ever but cool things about, about Joe Charbonneau, and just the fact that you can have a season like he did, and have that attention, and get that kind of celebrity is kind of a rare thing when you think about all the millions of of uh, millions of kids that grow up playing any kind of sport. And then, you know, like, you know, if you talk about music, when somebody has a one hit, they say, oh, he's a one hit wonder. That band was a one hit wonder. And so what? They had a hit. It's players like Super Joe that leave a lasting impression on baseball fans. Ben Gibbard cashed in on the opportunity of a lifetime as a young fan. Well, Alvin Davis was my favorite. Uh, He was my favorite player. Um, He was the first baseman. I was the first baseman. Uh, in little league. So that, you know, if you know, when you're in little league, whomever plays the position that you're at, that becomes who you want to be, you know? So uh, Alvin Davis was my favorite player. And I have this really wonderful memory of um, going to a Mariners game with my dad. And then after the game uh, here in the Northwest, there are uh, ferries that go across the sound. So there's a ferry that went from Seattle to Bremerton. And sometimes we would take the ferry over for the game, walk to the kingdom, which was a half mile from the ferry terminal. And then after the game, we get back on the ferry, go home. And for some reason, which I still have not determined why Alvin Davis was on the ferry going back to Bremerton after the game. And even looking back on that period now, I can't figure out how he got out of the park so quickly and onto the ferry because we must've left in the eighth or ninth inning. So I don't know how he had gotten on the boat, (laughs) like what the circumstances were, but regardless, he was on the boat. My dad recognized him and said, Hey, that's Alvin Davis. Why don't you go up and ask for his autograph? You know, I very nervously walked up to him and, you know, held up a piece of paper and a pen. And, you know, of course I was eight years old and he was really lovely. And, um, 
you know, it was, it was my first interaction with a famous person and it also so happened to be my favorite player. So uh, from that point on, it was just cemented that Alvin Davis was, was my guy. That's awesome. Most people don't get to meet their favorite players. Now for the Elfmans, Bodie could break down decades worth of lineups, but Jenna had one Dodger that stole her heart. I could name the entire team and all their numbers. and I could name the entire roster of the 70s, but uh, I had a crush on Steve Garvey. Well, yeah. <laughs> Popeye. Popeye, the big, what was the big forum? Was it? it was the big forums. He was just competent and good looking. And I think as a young girl, it was probably, you know, he was marketing. It was kind of like spoon fed, yeah. like, oh, Steve Garvey's the guy. You know? Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, I was a Ron Say fan. I loved the penguin. He was such a trippy dude in his little waddle. He was just a great stop at third base. I got to see all that stuff, including Don Sutton pitched. I got to go to games where Don Sutton pitched, and I saw all that fun stuff. There's two very different ways to find your favorites. Patrick Carney dove into the past and the present to pick some favorites. I mean, there's just so many players through the years that I was, you know, into whether it's Greg Swindell or Tom Candiotti or whatever. I'm trying to focus on like right now. And I, I love watching Tristan pitch. I think he's going to be a great pitcher. And uh, Bieber, you know, amazing. Currently, my favorite batter is Ramirez. I love his attitude. I end up being less of a fan of players and more. I'm just a fan of Cleveland's baseball. You know, it's like a old school fandom. Drew Carey and Patrick Carney don't believe that a World Series drought doesn't mean there can't be good, competitive baseball in Cleveland. They also know just how they celebrate if and when Cleveland does win that title. So I'll put this then out here. When Cleveland wins the World Series, see how I did that? When? Yeah, they're going. How are you going to celebrate? Oh, just a big part. I don't drink anymore, so I I won't drink, but I definitely will throw a little party. I'll buy some jerseys, get some buy some merch and some more money their way uh you know i'll do the usual things like anybody else uh it's it'll be a pretty big day you know when they win the world series i'll I'll, i will definitely man that chicago series when i went out there i was so primed to buy my indians world series championship gear at the you know while i was in town and i ended up with a jacket that just said you know world series on it like was a didn't have any teams just you were at a world series game i ended up throwing it away because i didn't i was so disgusted i didn't care like i didn't care because we were at the world series i wanted to win the stupid world series you know patrick carney yeah i mean i hate to bring this up but since we're on the topic cleveland is now the city that has gone without a world series title the longest talk about not only losing that series but now having chicago pass off their losing streak man that's got to be rough well i'd rather have uh, the record for something so but at least we can be <laughs> we can hold that title the last time that cleveland won a world series was 1948 my dad was born in 49 I'd just like to see them get a win during my dad's lifetime. That would be uh, good for me. When Cleveland wins the World Series, how are you going to celebrate? I mean, there will be tears when that happens. That's for sure. Jerry Ferrara remembers the dark days in the Bronx before the Yankees were the quote-unquote evil empire. That is before the Yankees reach an unfathomed dynasty and yearly championship aspirations. You mentioned, like, the ghosts of the stadium a little bit before, right? Uh I really think mm-hmm. back to getting to the World Series against Atlanta, right? This is 1996, and the Yankees hadn't been in the World Series, I think, since 78 at that point. So in New York, that's a huge stretch to 
not have a World Series appearance. And, you know, it was like 18-year-old Andrew Jones hit like two home runs in game one. Fred McGriff hit a home run that gonged off the foul pole. Braves won both games in New York and went up 2-0. And me and my friends at this point, we're, this is Brooklyn, right? So one of my friends kind of lived like above a storefront. So we tied a rope around this TV and lowered the TV down from his window so we could like set it up on the sidewalk corner. And like, we just had like 25 kids watching every, and like adult grownups walking their dogs would come hang out and watch the game. After the Yankees went down 2-0, okay, there was a church right across the street from my buddy's house. And 10 of us would go, I would, look, I, this is not, I'm not making any big religious statements. We went to church, like raised Catholic, but like, we were 15 year old kids. Like we were not focused on religion at this point, but we decided to go pray. Right. <laughs> this is all true. And we went in front of all the statues in like the courtyard of this church. And we all were on our knees praying, saying whatever prayers we remembered <laughs> from like Sunday school for the Yankees. And they won four straight after that. So they win game three and we go back the next day, pray just like we, we were all superstitious. So we prayed before every game. And they won four games to two. So that always like stands out as a beginning to an incredible era for the Yankees. Ken Burns relished in the Red Sox, not only reversing the curse that ended a century's worth of losing to turning the Sox-Yankees rivalry on its head. Well, it, now it's pretty good. <laughs> I, I can't begin to tell you what it was like to sit uh, living in New York in, in, in the Bucky Dent game and on a fifth floor walk up in Chelsea and a little black and white TV and everybody went off to go do something fun at Brighton Beach, but I had to watch this one game and just how sick I felt, how, what it felt like, not the Yankees, but when the ball went under Buckner's leg with the Mets, but they're from New York in, in 86. And then all the other times we you know, were defeated. And then 2003 with Aaron bleeping Boone's home run off Tim Wakefield, I mean, you just never thought, and it's it's Big Poppy, you know. He they just and the whole team. Kevin Millar, he predicted it, you know. Beginning of Game Four, just wait, you know. We do this, and we'll get PD, and then we'll get you know, Shell, and you know, it's just it, it's exactly what happened. So, it's it's I've been at the depths of despair as a human being. I suppose I should admit, um, with the with the losses that the Red Sox have suffered. Uh, and I have been, um, you know, as it's been as great as it's ever been, you know, when they've won. You mentioned in 2004 um, of the team's four World Series yep. championships since breaking the curse. Do you have a favorite and, and why? Well, you know, I think there's, I think 2007 was just this juggernaut. You know, they just like walk through. 2004 has to be it because I remember... I was so humiliated by the first three games. I was in New York. And when, when the Yankees went up, I think early on two to one, I just said, we're screwed, you know, and a typical Red Sox disaster, you know, existential angst. And yeah. my friend the was playing at Lincoln Center. And so I went there and I was hanging out backstage and just sort of licking my wounds. And I remember I went out at intermission and I heard some Yankee fans say, the F word, it's tied. And I just ran out of Lincoln Center and I called and I couldn't get through to anybody. And I got through to uh, my daughter and she goes, you can't believe it. We tied it up. It's unbelievable. And then, you know, I got to do that scene in my updated baseball called the 10th inning. And, and that was great. But I think there was something about both the 2013 team on paper, 
the Cardinals should have walked over us. And same with 2018, without Cora. I've never seen a manager mean more to a team than Alex Cora uh, in 2018 and this year. You know, going, we should, the, you know, the Yankees should have beaten us if history is a guide, and the Rays should have beaten us. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This is Game Day. Game Day really gets into it. We might as well be in the bleachers together when we talk about their favorite ways to take in a game. While some like to be in the stands or a box, others take comfort at home. For example, Ken Burns talks about the loyalty and effort that goes into supporting his New England Red Sox on game day. You know, I live in a tiny little village in New Hampshire. I mean, you you understand that, that when the Red Sox show up in Baltimore, there's a huge number percentage of the population at the away thing that are Boston Red Sox fans. But it is not the Boston Red Sox. It is the New England Red Sox. The dividing line is somewhere around New Haven. So south of New Haven, you can and New Haven, you can you can fairly accurately predict will be Yankee fans. Everything up to Canada, it's it's uh, and into some parts of of upstate New York, it's Red Sox. And so I live in a, and I've lived for 42 years in this tiny village in New Hampshire. And so it's a two and a half, three hour drive. So it's a big deal when we're going to the game. When you got little girls, sometimes by the sixth or seventh inning, they're like, when are we going? And you go, this could last forever, this game. And they go, what do you mean it could last forever? You know, what, 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 isn't it nine innings? You go, yeah, but you know, you could be losing by seven to two in the bottom of the ninth and you could win nine to two as we did, you know? I love that. And we all bring our gloves, you know, and I've got mine on everything and I don't take my eye off the ball because I've got little girls that if a, a, a screaming line drive and it's happened, I've, I've been up in a box where it, that the ball is hit like right above us or I've caught a ball or, you know, wow. stuff like that. That's a true sense of family and community in a fan perspective. But just like any other sports fan, these fans also have their routines and, for better or worse, superstitions that they feel they must follow for their teams to succeed. 
Like many, Drew Carey has to have some of his team's gear on during game day, but he also shares why he had to part with some of his apparel. I'd always try to wear like the team colors and like uh, I quit wearing the Chief Wahoo logo uh, years ago and uh, I used to defend it and make jokes about how silly it was that people didn't like it. And then I uh, like jokes that I'm ashamed of actually. And now I'm, you know, that my eyes are a little wide open and I, I saw, then I got to realize what a horrible caricature that symbol was. And uh, like one day I just came home and I threw out every single hat I had jerseys, a pennant that I had from like the fifties hanging on my wall in a frame of chief Wahoo hitting the ball. And it was this great, I thought it was this great prize that I had this old, pennant from the 50s that um you know because i used to get those when i would go to games like every season and get a new pennant to hang on your bedroom wall you know and i got rid of that and i don't know i just threw them in the trash i didn't even try to give them away Mm -hmm. i'm glad i'm actually glad they got rid of it while drew carey was ahead of his time with dropping chief wahoo ben gibbard's tradition borders on superstition i never like to miss the first pitch most of my friends know that if we're going to a baseball game together it's not like a just make your way into the stadium whenever kind of thing. I mean, at this point now, we have the tickets on our phones. You know, we're, you're not holding four tickets waiting for the other three people to meet you in front of the park to give them to your to them. So um, that has kind of removed one of my frustrations about going to games with other people, people that don't either care that much or don't understand the importance of being there for first pitch, which is. I wouldn't so, so much say it's a superstition as much as it is a tradition. I just like to be there from the beginning of the game. I don't, I don't like to come in in the second inning and like, what happened? What's been going on for the last 30 minutes? I, I want to be there from the fir- from first pitch. I also have to admit that while I always try to get there for first pitch, I am not above leaving a game in the sixth inning if they're getting blown out. Ben Gibbard sure is meticulous about his baseball, but so is Jerry Ferrara, just in a different way. Jerry has a specific way he takes in and deals with his beloved Yanks. That's the magic word you said right there. Superstitious. As you saw, like I told you earlier, we, you know, a bunch of 15-year-old kids praying in a courtyard four nights in a row or whatever it was. Like, (laughs) we just got whatever works. So when I'm home, and I like to these days watch games at home. I mean, I used to go to a lot more games and stuff, but... If, if I wore a shirt and the Yankees won, you know, I'm going to wash that shirt and wear it for the next game. If I'm sitting in a certain spot, drinking a certain thing, that's what I'm going to do. There's even been times, I think it was like the Giants last year where they were going on their little run. They were playing, I think, the Seahawks, which is a game they shouldn't have won. And they, and they, as like Colt McCoy was playing because Daniel, Daniel Jones was hurt. And I was like holding my son in like a certain position. And I kept like saying, I don't remember what I was saying to him before every pass that the Giants were marching down the field. And I said it over and over and over. I don't know what that says about me. I'm a little OCD maybe, but superstition all day. And I do like to have people over to watch sports, but like when it's my team, like if it's like the Knicks in the playoffs, like with it, like versus Atlanta, I'm typically watching that alone because I need to be one with my emotions. I need to be able to yell and cry and <laughs> throw stuff. And yeah, it's embarrassing. Just like Jerry, Elizabeth Moss has superstitious tendencies. I mean, I think every fan has that thing where you think 
you're not sure if you watching the game brings luck or if watching the game brings bad luck. And if something goes wrong and you're at the game, you feel like it's your fault. Like, of yeah. course, like every I think every fan, every fan does that. Those guys have some hardcore traditions. But superstitions aren't the only thing these fans have tried to pump up their teams. Some were blessed enough to throw out the first pitch to get their team and home crowd ready. Here's a little inside info. It's not that easy. In fact, Jenna Elfman was nervous. She only had one shot to throw out a strike with her two opportunities in throwing out the first pitch. She had her sons in the crowd, which I think was a little bit of extra motivation. Spoiler alert. She aced it. She threw out the first pitch from the mound twice. And once was six months pregnant. Oh, wow. Okay. Throwing out the cred. Oh, yeah. Twice. I was Aphis Strike both times. I was doing a TV show at the time and super random. One of our set decorators on the TV show had used to be in the A's, in the minor leagues. So we would, anytime there was a scene I wasn't in or on our lunch break, or I'd come in a little early, he, we would just drill in the parking lot outside the set. Throwing strikes. Pitches. He just taught me to pitch. She threw a strike from the mound. I did. It was incredible. Completely blown away. I've heard that practicing for that pitch versus actually standing on that mound are two very different feelings. Was that the case yes. for you? Yes, because here's what happens. When you're practicing, I mean, this is a very rudimentary thing that I'm going to say that, but it's unique for me because it's not my business, not my industry. I'm not an athlete, I'm an actress. So what was what really hit me when I hit that mound is I get one try at this. <laughs> but when I'm practicing, I'm just like, all right, next time. All right, next time. If I don't get it, better luck next time. Just keep practicing. And then you get up there and there is no next time. So you like better get it right. I mean... I just didn't want to be one of those people on YouTube that just throws a shake and I just like shakes it, just like totally messes up. That was not going to be me as a chick on the mound throwing. Like I am way too competitive and way too much of a tomboy to mess it up. I thought and she killed it. I was, I was blown gonna say, Ben Gippard wasn't so positive about both his attempts. And while he points out worse first pitch attempts, he was more in awe of just being on the mound in front of all those people. The first one I was not. The second one I think I did. Um, when I was living in L.A., I, I actually played in an, in an adult, like, fast pitch, like a, a rec league when I was living in L.A., and I pitched in a rec league. So I know how to throw the ball over the plate for the most part. But what's difficult is, you know, when you're throwing a first pitch, at least the way they do it at um, T-Mobile, now T-Mobile, and I'm sure it's the similar other places, you know, you're warming up in the catacombs of the park. So you're somewhere in a hallway and there's like a ball boy or ball girl and you're like just tossing the ball, warming up. And then you sit idle for 10 minutes waiting for them to call you up to the mound. Well, now you're on a mound. You know, now you're you're no longer thrown from a flat. You're on a mound. And to make matters even more complicated, I was never really aware of how large a, a ballpark was until I was standing on the mound. You know, when you're, <laughs> you're, you know, when you're in the stands, it's made to feel very intimate, you know, due to, you know, architectural magic or something to make you feel like you're closer to the field. But when you're on the mound, you're acutely aware of how gigantic this place is. So yeah. it, you haven't thrown in 10 minutes. You're throwing from a mound because I'm not going to throw from the grass through that. I'm throwing from the mound. And then also you're nervous because there's, you know, tens of thousands of people there. So uh, I think the first one I threw was I kind of threw it to the backstop 
which I was pretty embarrassed about. But the second one, a little high and inside, got it in. And uh, yeah, it was it was fun. I mean, when I see somebody shank a first pitch, I, I have sympathy for it because I, I know what they had to do to get to that point. Um, but, you know, there have been, of course, some historically bad ones. I mean, Fauci's was pretty bad. Oh. And 50 Cent, I think, still has the, I mean, <laughs> the marker of throwing the worst first pitch of all time, at least you know, the one that was, a, that was filmed. I mean, I'm sure there might've been one in the twenties that was worse, but uh, I mean, the 50 cent one was pretty bad and, and Fauci, Fauci wasn't much better. So. Drew Carey enlisted the help of the pitching coach for some basic tips to help him succeed. I was playing catch with the players in the infield before and I, the pitching coach came over to me. I forget his name now. And he came up to me and he goes, do you want me to show you how I teach kids to throw the ball? And I went, yes. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. And he showed me, he worked on my rotation on my arm because I was like, I, I couldn't even get it from third to first, you know, without a ball on the ground. Hey, but that's kind of cheating. I mean, who gets like warm up lessons before before their first pitch? I mean, that, that had to help. I think anybody who is going to do a first pitch to get some, have some kind of practice just to walk out there, you know. Practice makes perfect is the moral of that story. Sitting in different sections provides you a whole new perspective on the game. Jenna and Bodie Elfman grew up with different perspectives, but now the Elfmans have a tradition of sitting close to their squad when they're in the stadium. I grew up in the nosebleeds, like getting the cheapest seats you could get. My mom would take me and get the cheapest seats you could get from usually scalpers. You just pull up and find what you could get. And then I got lucky by marrying like seven divisions out of my class and moving way up with Jenna where I got like a different quality of lifestyle afforded to me. So we started having better seats, but there was a period where we got to sit in the owner's box for about two years. And that was kind of incredible. So that was like a little bit of a rare thing. Not standing that I like to be on the first base side, sort of off of first base where I can see the game, but not tilt my head so much where I get like a crick after an hour. Gotcha. Okay. Jenna, how about you? I like being closer. I like between home. Of course, being right behind home is really fun. But between home and first is my favorite. Closer to home or in the middle. The Elfmans have experienced lots of sections in Dodger Stadium. Meanwhile, Ken Burns is admittedly spoiled when it comes to watching the Red Sox at Fenway. Well, you know, I'm a little bit spoiled. Obviously, when we're able to get good tickets behind home plate, it's pretty good because you could. I, I really like seeing the ball move. Like I, like you just you can't see that on TV. Um, but I've been my you know all my films are on PBS and they're underwritten the sole corporate underwriter since 2006 is Bank of America and and they've got a box there and often like once a year we go to the box and the kids like it because they can go and get food and whatever and mm -hmm. and and sit. I, I like sitting down outside. It's it's two boxes away from where the owners are. So it's just on the left field side and, and just, it's a fantastic viewpoint. A little bit of the, of the left field corner is, is out of sight. Um, but that there's nothing wrong with it, of course. And so that's good. But the best part, you know, I remember one of the earliest games I took a friend's, um, a French guy to, um, to Fenway Park trying to explain baseball. And it was a one to nothing, 13, 12 or 13th inning game against the Yankees. Jim Rice hit the walk off home run. I mean, it was just like, 
every exception to prove the rule when you're trying to explain the game to somebody. And I've been out, I've been in the seats in the left field side with a friend's son who had never been to Fenway before. And there was a foul ball and you could see like a shadow uh, of every, all these tall people holding up their gloves and then this little kid holding up the glove and the ball went right into his mitt. It's his oh, first time wow. in Fenway Park. He went on to work for the Red Sox. He liked, he was so in love with the Red Sox and he became part of that. I think he still might be scouting for them and stuff to this day. But I, I remember, you know, and he looked at me like I was the God that I'd had somehow by so taking him there, by paying for the tickets that I had anything to do. No, it was so great. And I remember watching it because everybody moved up and, you know, it, it just the ball knew where it was going into his mid and everyone else above him was towering and he was just in this little gap in between. It was, you couldn't script it better. And, and it was one of those things that I'm sure he has that ball. Wow, that's a sweet story. And another fan for the Sox for sure. Elizabeth Moss has sat all over Wrigley, but there's one section that stands out above the others. I've sat everywhere, obviously. <laughs> I've sat everywhere, although I don't think I've sat that much in the bleachers, um, but I have sat pretty much everywhere uh, at, at Wrigley Field. Um, I prefer, if I can have my choice uh i prefer the third baseline i prefer being um near the cubs dugout because half the fun is watching them you know what i mean half the fun is just being close to the team and feeling like you have a connection with the team even if you don't <laughs> there's no better way to be in on the action than sitting next to your team's dugout now we know where they like to sit but what are these fans eating during the game some of these meals seem like a no-brainer, but there's also some that come with a history all their own. Bodie Elfman tells us about the legendary Dodger dog. This is a part of my childhood, and it's it, there was a certain snap to the skin when you bite it, like the, the casing has like a snap to it, and there's a certain kind of nostalgia to it. When you hit a certain age and you start different quality of food that you've become accustomed to in your life, you realize that that is the gamiest, lowest quality <laughs> on earth. And that you were probably out of your little kid mind thinking that was so delicious as a boy. Nostalgia really does have a lot of influence on our tastes. But Ben Gibbard and Jerry Ferrara have a couple selections that are quintessential to their locales. I'll do a burger from Little Woody's. Pizza, pizza, give me the pizza. Give me all the pizza. Like, it's quick, it's easy. You could, like, one-hand it with a napkin or a plate. It's, it's, it's a good utility food that's just delicious if you get the right one. Ooh, those sound good. They make me hungry. Patrick Carney brings a typical choice, but with a unique story behind it. A hot dog with mustard and onions and beer. One of the earlier, earlier games we went to, we sat behind uh, some of the family members that own Burtman's Ballpark Mustard. There's kind of a story that most people don't know who aren't Cleveland that there's a specific mustard that they use in Cleveland called ballpark mustard, and they've used it for a long time, which is an integral part of a Cleveland baseball game. And in the 70s, the Burtman family partnered with an investor to try to like take the brand nationally, and they got completely hosed, and a, a brand of mustard called Stadium Mustard, which is the exact same thing, <laughs> launched. But I think that that was an integral part of early understanding of Cleveland is just there's uniqueness to Cleveland baseball, even down to the mustard. And it's the only stadium in America that serves it. Buy it on Amazon. I, I highly I recommend ordered. 
I was going to say, do you have some in your fridge like uh, always, right now? Always. Oh, always. I love it. I love that. When I first started dating Michelle, she hated mustard. I was like, you've never tried ballpark mustard. And now she's obsessed with it. She's obsessed okay. with mustard. That is quite the story. For Elizabeth Moss, it's all about the hot dogs. Just not the expected Chicago style. Definitely hot dogs. Um, I controversially do not eat them the right way, like with Chicago style. I do like them with ketchup, which is, I know, a black mark on my character, but... It is what it is. Um, so I I I, uh, I enjoy my I just hot dogs. I mean I don't think yeah. peanuts because that's fun. Because when do you ever eat like a sh- fully shelled peanut? Like that's not a yes. thing that happens. No. Like a bag of peanuts. Like it does <laughs> not happen outside of a game. Um, God, what else? I mean, it's just that's really all about the hot dogs for me. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Crunch Time. Fans often have that one item that they cherish. You guys have been rocking with me long enough that you know mine is my Patrick Ewing New York Knicks jersey. Can't live without it. But let's hear from some of our guests, Kim Burns, Patrick Carney, and Drew Carey, But first, one of Jerry Ferrara's most prized possessions is a ticket stub to a no-hitter loss. But his top piece is something he can sit with until the end of time. Yeah, I do have over there, uh, I know for those of you only listening to this, I have a, that's a chair from the original Yankee Stadium that's on some office wheels. Ken Burns, most prized Red Sox memorabilia. I have a hat signed by Pedro Martinez. Patrick Carney, your most prized baseball memorabilia. Signed baseball with Bob Feller. Drew Carey, your most prized baseball memorabilia. I I have a Joe Charbonneau baseball signed by Joe Charbonneau. Uh, I also have a uh, Bob Feller baseball. My kid asked me, hey, can I have your Bob Feller baseball? And I was like, no. <laughs> Elizabeth Moss, best Cubs memorabilia. Ooh, my Cubs hat that I wore on the show. There's a lot of great baseball movies to choose from, but my favorite baseball movie is A League of Their Own. 
But let's hear from Drew Carey, Jerry Ferrara, Bodie Elfman, and Ken Burns. Drew Carey kicks off our guest selections with a classic. Yeah, I used to give a thumbs down. When I first heard that, I was like, ah, man, they filmed it in Milwaukee. But now that I've been in show business a while, I thought, oh, well, you know, makes sense. And you can do film it anywhere if you want. Green screen it if you want to. I don't care. And just the idea. Yeah. See, that's the thing. It was funny and everybody in Cleveland liked it because it presented this fantasy that the Cleveland Indians were a good competitive team, you know, which was, it could have easily been taken as an insult, you know, like, Oh, the only way we can be a good competitive team and have anything happen is in this fantasy world that you've, that you're presenting in this like over the top comedy and like it, nobody could, you couldn't remake major league now and make it about the Cleveland Indians. Hmm. You just couldn't. Because people would be like, what are you talking about? They're always in the playoffs and they just played, you know, they were just in the championship series, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just inane that it would have to be a whole different story. And you'd have to pick another team that has this like history of losing forever and ever. And I don't even know who that would be right now because nobody has a worse record of losing than the Indians when the that movie came out. That kind of story could have been about football hockey basketball Mm -hmm. like you name it but the cleveland indians were such a symbol of futility you know and losing it was really frustrating like i uh so that movie was to to us like the best thing ever jerry ferrara best baseball movie it's a tie between major league and sandlot but i'll say sandlot for the nostalgia of to my childhood Bodie Elfman. Best baseball movie. Family's Bears, the original, the first one. Ken Burns. Best baseball movie. Bull Durham. Those are all so good, but still don't beat out my selection. Next up, Patrick Carney and Ken Burns shared their choices for best individual team in Cleveland and Boston franchise history. 1948. Oh, 2004, I think you got to say. It is clear why Patrick and Ken chose those two World Series teams, but what players stood out as the best or most unsung? Ben Gibbard kicks us off with a greatest and most unsung Mariner. It'd have to be Ken Griffey Jr., right? I mean, there's, there's no other. Most unsung Mariner would be Deho Lee. Those are some heartwarming choices, but now let's turn our view to the opposition. Rivalries are synonymous with baseball. Every team has one. It's a tradition as old as time. And some fans single out teams as a whole, while others focus in on that one player who always got under their skin. Ken Burns shares not only his least favorite rival player, but also the team that is just always in the way. Most hated Red Sox rival player. Alex Rodriguez. Yankees Red Sox rivalry. So I want to go there. Um, how fun is that at rivalry for you? Well, it, now it's pretty good. <laughs> I, I can't begin to tell you what it was like to sit uh, living in New York in, in, in the Bucky Dent game and on a fifth floor walk up in Chelsea and a little black and white TV and everybody went off to go do something fun at Brighton Beach, but I had to watch this one game and just how sick I felt, how, what it felt like, not the Yankees, but when the ball went under Buckner's egg with the Mets, but they're from New York in, in 86. Ben Gibbert, favorite team to beat? Uh, the Angels, all the way. Can't stand the Angels. 
Jerry Ferrara, most hated Yankee rival player. I would say Pedro Martinez for me. Elizabeth Moss, favorite team to beat. The Dodgers. Those were some pretty decisive picks right there. But it all circles back to the love of the team. We asked our huge fans to describe their huge fandom in a special way. Jerry Ferrara, one word to describe your Yankees fandom. Fortunate. Ben Gibbard, one word to describe your Mariners fandom. Hopeless. Drew Carey, one word to describe your Cleveland baseball fanhood. Ah, man. Loyal. Elizabeth Moss, one word to describe your Cubs fandom. Familial, if that makes any sense, uh, because it it's very much a family thing for me. Patrick Carney, one word to describe your Cleveland baseball fanhood. Optimistic. Ken Burns, one word to describe your Red Sox fandom. Essential. Ooh, I don't think we've ever had essential. That's a good one. No, I just don't know what my life would be without my love of the Red Sox. I'm a huge fan. Shout out to everyone for tuning in to this huge fan baseball episode. Also, thanks to our guests who shared their baseball fandom. I'm looking forward to all the action on and off the field. And yes, I'm spoiled. I am in Atlanta with the defending champs, the Braves. So let's go baseball. You can find Huge Fan on Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other huge fans can find us. And don't forget to follow the show or subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. That'll do it for this round of Huge Fan, the podcast where stars talk sports. I'm LaChina Robinson. Until next time, keep rooting your guts out. Go Budos Band! Hey Fidelity, how can I remember to invest every month? With the Fidelity app, you can choose a schedule and set up recurring investments in stocks and ETFs. Oh, that sounds easier than I thought. You got this. Yeah, I do. Now, where did I put my keys? You will find them where you left them. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.